Hi, and welcome to the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. We've provided a collection of sermons, our midweek lessons, music, and many more tools to help you grow in your walk with God. We are living in an unprecedented and challenging time, but we invite you to listen in and be encouraged as we fight through this together. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. We're going to begin in verse 1 of James chapter 5. <clears throat> All right, James, 1, uh, James 5 verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten yourselves in the day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Okay, so there we go. What a great intro to uh, the lesson, right? <laughs> What's going on here? I mean, this is just like he just laid into them or seemingly laid into them just right out of the gate. And it's not the first time he brought this kind of thing up. In fact, the first time was in chapter 1, verses 9 through uh, 10, I believe, where he also mentions about the rich and how that's not, uh, could potentially not go well for them. So, but I don't really think, honestly, that James has a problem with wealthy people because they're wealthy. But rather, he has a problem with what wealth can do to, to people. And I think Jesus felt the same way. Jesus never condemned people for being wealthy. So you never saw a situation where Jesus was just completely down on somebody simply because they were blessed with a lot of money or a lot of belongings or, or whatever. Um, so he never condemned them either, but, but he warns us against the potential grip that wealth can have on us and how much it can change our hearts and how much it can just take over everything that we are and, and what, we, what we believe in. And so he has a hard time with that. And we, we really see this warning from Jesus in the parable of the rich fool. Now, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time. You can make a note and look at it later. It's in Luke 12. But in the parable of, uh, of the rich fool, there's a certain man who was blessed with a lot of wealth and a lot of goods. And, and so he's got all of his stuff in a barn and he just keeps getting stuff, right? So he's got so much good stuff that instead of saying, I think I'll have a yard sale and get rid of half of it, he says, oh, you know what? I think the right thing to do would just be to build a, a second barn, right? So he builds another barn just to be able to keep all of his stuff. And so it was obvious that this man was blessed with wealth, but his goal in life was to grow it, to grow his wealth, to hoard it, and then to protect it. And so that became everything that he was about. And God confronts him about it. And he says this, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stored up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And so again, he doesn't condemn the fact that the guy was blessed and he had wealth. He condemns the fact that that was everything to him. He was not rich toward God. It was all about his stuff. And so now when we look at what we just read, 
verses one through six. It's a scathing rebuke and it's a warning. And you might wonder how, how somebody like this could be in the church. Well, the answer is, I don't think they were in the church. These were people that were oppressing the Christians, not the Christians themselves. So this is a warning and it's a rebuke, but it's really to, to, to people in the world. Now you might say, well, what people in the world were even reading or hearing this letter, right? Because this letter would have been read in a, in a, in a religious service or read to disciples. But I think it was a letter read to the disciples to know that this is the way God feels about people in the world who just live for the world. The people in the world who just live for their wealth and their money, and that's the most important thing. And so that's why he reads this. The answer is these people, one through six, were not the Christians, okay? But the Christians very much knew who these people were because they were surrounded by them. And these were the people that were oppressing them. And these were the people that were just pushing them down and making life miserable. And the, the message to the disciples actually came a little bit later. And that's what we have in verse 7. So he paints this picture of these are the people in the world. You know who they are. We all see them. We all feel them. It's not going to go well for them. You know, life about, you know, just having money isn't really good. So, but here's something that we can think about. And so in verse 7, he addresses them. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so he draws some examples from the Old Testament, which they, they would have been familiar with and probably the one they were the most familiar with would have been Job. That was probably, that's like the quintessential, you know, story about patience and, and long suffering and, and trusting in God. Job, as we know, was, was blessed very, very well. Um, but then it was all taken away and he just stayed faithful. And he had some, some rough times during the, those middle chapters of Job with his friends. <clears throat> but then when you get to Job chapter 42, you know, because of his perseverance and his patience, and his faithfulness, God blesses him in even greater ways. And so James is trying to say, look, just look at Job as an example. Yes, I know you're going through a lot right now, and there are people that are oppressing you, and there are people that are giving you a hard time. But you know what? Hang in there, stay in there, be patient, because it's gonna, it's gonna end up well for you. It's gonna be okay. And so it's all about patience. Now, <clears throat> he talks about something that made a little more sense to them than perhaps it does to us. He says, until the Lord's coming. Now, that can be a little confusing for us because we're like, well, we don't know when the Lord is coming, right? So is it going to be in my lifetime? Okay, if I'm really patient right now, maybe like next week when Jesus comes back, all is going to be good. Or maybe next month or maybe next year. And, 
you know, we really don't know. And that's kind of the, the perspective we have now, right? Because we have the benefit of the whole New Testament, so we get to read all the different things. But, you know, back then, there wasn't the luxury of the, of the complete New Testament that we have right now. And it was widely believed back in the first century that Jesus' Jesus's second return was imminent. That with all of the stuff going on, that he's going to be right back, you know, just don't, don't worry about it, don't sweat it. In fact, you know, Paul has to write to the church in Thessalonica and basically tells them, look, you got to get up and do something. Go back to work. Have like normal lives because we don't know when he's coming back. They were like literally just stopping what they were doing. And, and just like waiting, like they weren't working, they weren't tending to their crops, they probably weren't even taking care of their families because in their mind, look, you know, all right, well, it's 758, Jesus is coming like any minute now. And Paul had to warn them, no, 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 we don't know when it is. And so when he says here in chapter seven, or verse seven rather, you know, until the Lord's coming, they had this belief that it was going to happen anytime, like right around the corner, which to them would have been very welcome news because of the oppression that they were facing. But we know that Jesus' Jesus's return may not be for, who knows? It could be a year, it could be a hundred years. I mean, we just don't know. But at the same time, we do need to be patient. And we do need to believe that, yes, God is working on our behalf and Jesus' power is very, very much with us. Um, and so that kind of brings us to, to, to where we are right now. Do you feel any kind of oppression in your life as though maybe there's there's something coming against you there's some kind of force there's some kind of feeling maybe it's even more than just a force and a feeling maybe there's like literally oppression coming at you you're, you're getting knocked down you're getting dragged out my guess is probably so and the reason why i would guess that is because the kingdom of god is so different than the world and so if you're really living as a true Christian and you're really trying to live as one set apart, then no doubt there's going to be something coming against you. If you don't feel any oppression, if you don't feel any persecution, if you feel nothing by taking a stand as a Christian, then are you really taking a stand as a Christian? You know, sometimes we try so hard to be relatable, right? You know, we say, well, look, I just want, I want to make the gospel attractive. And I get that, you know, I don't want to make the gospel intentionally unattractive, but at the same time, I don't want to present the gospel as something that it isn't. And I think sometimes there's a, there's a, a step that we take that's very dangerous and it's, it's trying to be relatable to people in the world, right? And so sometimes we, we, we do that to the point that we actually look pretty much like people in the world. And we have to tell them, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and oftentimes they're like, oh, what? Oh, really? Like it was a shock to them. Because we're trying to be cool. We're trying to be relatable. Sometimes we do it in, in how we talk to people, you know, how we present ourselves, whether it's on a job with your family you're just tiptoeing around because you want to make sure that you're not the one that's that's too different because people are going to think you're kind of crazy or kind of weird and they're not going to they're not going to be interested so again let me just be super relatable and i don't get the sense that anybody in the first century did that i don't think people walking around in jesus's day or you know james's day 
was trying to be just like somebody in the world. In fact, they, they did everything they could possibly do to not be like the world. I mean, they really stood out. And they were, they were righteously proud about the fact that they were not like people in the world. They, they knew they were different. And they were so excited and so happy to be different. They had different values. And they had different morals. And they had different priorities. They had different convictions. And they knew the only way that we're going to have any impact on this world is to be different. And so they never tried to be like the world in any way. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise a lot of wisdom. I think we do need to exercise wisdom. There are certain things that you would say to somebody right off the bat that would probably shut a conversation down and might even shut a door that was beginning to open. But I think once that door is open, and once you're through that door, and the people with whom you're speaking with, whether they be on the job or in your neighborhood or your family or whoever it might be, once they, they know who you are because you've explained to them who you are, at that point, trying to blend in the, in the world, you know, like somebody in the world is gonna actually do a lot more harm than good. Because then you come across like a hypocrite, where you come across like, like a watered down version of a Christian that they've probably seen all around them. And so, We've got to be willing to be different, but that might mean some more persecution, right? That might be, mean some more oppression. That might mean that whether it's the people you work with or work for, if you have a supervisor or a boss or your family, they might be more apt to give you a hard time or a harder time if you're stepping up and really taking a stand. But again, this is where we have to be patient. And I think that's why James even told those first six verses about, look, this is what people in the world are like, but we have to be patient and stand up to that kind of oppression. Because we fundamentally stand in opposition to so much of what the world believes and teaches, there are no doubt going to be times when we feel oppression breathing down our necks. And again, you, you, you have to figure out for yourself where it is, if it's family or where you work or you live or where you go or people you know, or you know what, maybe it's in what you read. Maybe you feel just oppressed by reading certain things or hearing certain things. But whatever it is, wherever it's coming from, it requires you to be patient and trust and know that God is near. And so he's trying to tell them, look, until the Lord's coming, again, we don't know how long that's going to be, but until that time is, we've got to be patient and endure whatever tough times, whatever tough roads come our way. And of course, we know that from the beginning of James, that was the first thing he talked about. 2020 has been a very, very difficult year for everyone. I, I don't know of a single person that I've spoken to that says, this has been an awesome year in every way possible. I mean, this is a banner. This is a great year. Yeah, maybe certain things have gone well. And, but I think if you look as, at it as a whole, it's, it's not been a great year on so many fronts. We've all suffered loss this year. <clears throat> they may not all be the same losses, but we've all suffered loss. As individuals, we'd suffered loss. Maybe you've lost your, your job, or maybe you've lost, you've lost a lot of your job. Maybe whatever you do, there's much less of it right now. 
I think a lot of us have lost our confidence. We certainly lost a measure of, of freedom and independence, right? I mean, I, I was getting out of my car the other day and I was going in the stop and shop. And, you know, I had to park a bit away from the store because it was busy. And so, and I was in a bit of a rush. So I parked my car, I, I walked up to the store, I was right at the door in a bit of a hurry and I realized I forgot my mask. And it's like, oh, and I was reminded by that sign at the door. It's like, oh, so I had to walk all the way back to the car, get my mask. Okay, that wasn't a big deal. I've had times when I've driven and not had a mask in the car and had no choice but to go back home and get the mask. And, and so, you know, that's just one small example. I realized that there could be many, many more for you that are far deeper than that. But I think we've all lost a degree of, of, of freedom and independence. You can't just go where you want to go now. You can't do what you want to do, right? You've got, everything has to be calculated. You know, I was going by, I was, uh, I was studying with a guy last week and uh, I was up in Orange and uh, I was at the Panera in Orange and um, I needed to go to Trader Joe's to pick up something for my wife because she loves Trader Joe's. So it's like, all right, there's a, there's a, there's a Trader Joe's like, like two blocks away, right? It's two lights away. So I drive up and I pull in and there's a line of like 20 people like staggered down. It's like, oh, I can't even just pull in the Trader Joe's, right? So we've all had to go through those kind of things. So maybe you've lost some vision too. Maybe along with that, you've lost some joy. And so, yes, individually, I think we've suffered some losses, but I think even as a fellowship, as a church, we've definitely suffered some losses. Our fellowship has changed dramatically. I feel it tremendously, and I, I bet all of you do as well. It's, it's, not, it's not like it was. And to be really honest, I don't know when it's going to be when you know, or like it was. I don't even know if it's ever going to be like it was. I certainly hope and pray that it will be like it was. But I don't, I, I can't tell you that 100%. And I can't tell you when we would even be able to see something like that. And so it's been, it's been quite a challenge. <clears throat> now, some have, adjust, have adjusted better than, than others. Some people have had a really, really hard time with the way we, we have to have fellowship right now, the way we have to have church. There are some people that are just having a hard time adjusting to, well, am I going to be online? Am I not going to be online? But it's, it's just tough. However, and to whatever degree you feel it, you feel it. Our fellowship is not the same. Church is not the same. I really don't like doing messages into a camera, to be really honest with you. And, and, but it's what I have to do right now. So we all have to adjust and, and kind of deal with it. Lord willing, at some point, we will get back to something we're more familiar with. But you know what? In the meantime, we have to be patient. And here's another thing where the patience is really, is really key. We have to be patience, patient, and we have to trust that at some point we'll get back to what we're more familiar with. In, in the meantime, we've got to be positive, we've got to be in, stay encouraged, and we've got to stay faithful. Know that God will deliver us. We may not know when, but we know that he will. So that was the first thing that James taught. And then he, he shifts gears completely, okay? And he's like James at the, at the door again. So here we go in verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth 
or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned, right? So that just came out of nowhere. Where, what, what is he, what's he talking about here? Well, he's not talking about obscenity, okay? So he's not saying don't use foul language, but he's talking about oath, an oath, taking an oath. What is an oath? So an oath is something that you, you do or something that you say that, that vouches for your honesty or your integrity, right? So that kind of proves that, yes, what I'm about to say, what, what I'm about to do is, is real and, and just and true. Jesus spoke directly about this, and it's the very thing that James comments on. So if you can flip over to, to um, Matthew chapter 5, we'll take a look at a couple of verses. We will come back here in a minute. And uh, we're going to look at verse 33, Matthew 5, 33. Look at what Jesus says. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, that's a pretty hard line position that Jesus takes. Why would this be such a big deal? Why is he harping on this oath thing? Why would it even be necessary for Jesus to, to say that? Because I think it speaks to the integrity of, of who we are as, as men of God. Whenever we speak, it should always be as one speaking the truth. And this should be deeply, deeply woven into the fabric of who we are in Christ. And it shouldn't have to be something that's, that's prompted. So we, we shouldn't say when we're getting ready to tell somebody something, you know, I'm telling you the truth, or I'm not lying. And we should never have to say, you know, I swear to God. Unlike the world, we, we shouldn't have to declare that what we're saying is, is truthful by some kind of a pledge as though maybe other things that we say are not truthful. We, we, we shouldn't have to, to make a point out of, no, no, but this, the, the, this particular thing is truth. It should just be assumed that because we're disciples, because integrity is such a huge part of who we are, that yes, it's going to be truth. We shouldn't have to declare our integrity by an oath. Now, there, there may be times when we have to do that legally. I don't know exactly what the exemption policy is here with this, so I don't even wanna get into that right now, because I know some people would probably argue with me on this, but there might be times legally when we have to take an oath if you're in court or if there's a, an, an appointment of some kind, okay? So, but I think what, what both James and Jesus are saying, it's the same thing. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just whatever you speak, let it be the truth. And if there's repercussions for that, you've got to own something that you're really not comfortable owning. Okay, well then so be it. It's going to go a lot better for you if you just own it than you, you speak a mistruth 
and then you have to own something bigger later. So we just need to, to let our yes be yes and our no be no end of story. So now we're gonna shift gears again to something else that I think we can all relate to. And it's, it's what to do when somebody isn't doing well. Okay, and this is important because at some point that person not doing well might very well be you. And so let's take a look at the point that, that he makes about this. And uh, we're going to go back to James chapter 5. And now as that conversation by the door continues, we're in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being just as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. We'll stop right there. This whole section speaks to the power of prayer, and it speaks to the practice of prayer. It's a very, very important part of the, of the text. We all go through spiritual cycles and spiritual phases. And if you're a very young Christian right now, you may not have cycled or gone through too many phases. But if you've been around as long as an old man like Fred Goodman, then you've probably gone through a few cycles and a few phases now and then, right? It's okay. I'm in the same place. Actually, I'm older than Fred. Maybe not Dennis. Oh, I think I'm a little bit older than Dennis. But anyway, there's a bunch of old guys here, but there's a lot of young guys here too. So maybe you haven't been through a whole lot of phases and stages and different things. But the truth is, the longer you're, you're alive as a Christian, the more you're going to cycle in and out of doing well, doing great, doing not so well, doing terrible. You know, maybe you just want to give up on it. You're like half out the door. You are out the door. Now you're back in the door and you're doing great. And then a couple more years, it kind of cycles again. That's just, that's just the way it is. I don't know of anybody that has consistently from day one gone through a period of years and never faltered in their faith or in their in their uh, in their walk. I know I certainly have many times. There's been times when I've been really down and wonder, man, is this even working? Am I even, you know, should I even be here? Is this even, you know, true and real? Uh, fortunately, I haven't had those thoughts in quite a long time, but there have been times when I've had those thoughts. So we all go through this, this, this phase and, and cycling kind of thing. Times we're doing well, times we're not doing well. And it's really great that we can be in each other's lives and we can encourage each other. But you know what? As awesome as that is, it's even greater when we can pray for each other. <clears throat> now, he talks about oil, this, this, uh, this pouring of oil. Oil is there for two reasons. One, oil is symbolic, but two, it's also medicinal. And if you look through the Old Testament at the Old Testament priesthood, you see that oil was used a lot, this pouring of oil, and it was done in a very ceremonial way. There would be, you know, pouring on the beard and pouring on the head. So oil was used a lot in, uh, in ceremonies, but oil was also medicinal at this particular time. <clears throat> now, we didn't have 
you know, doctors have them. They don't have, you know, Mo's and Garth's around. So back then they had doctors, but the doctors didn't have what we have today, obviously. So there were very few uh, treatments available for ailments back in the first century. And one of the biggest one was oil. People believe if you just, just pour oil on something, it's going to be fine. And so it, was, it had a very medicinal quality to it. And so when he says here, is anyone sick, let, the, let them pour oil on the name of the Lord. I don't know, maybe that was part ceremonial, but I think it was probably mostly medicinal. That Let's just put some oil on here and that's going to have some kind of a you know, positive physical effect. And I think it's this medicinal component that might have more relevance for us. Because what I see with this illustration right here, this example right here, is that God gives us uh, great opportunities in this day and age. We have amazing uh, medical advancements. We've got great doctors. We've got great health, great healthcare facilities. You know, we've got a lot at our disposal. And so I see this, this as a way that we can combine medicine with prayer. So it may not necessarily be pouring oil on somebody who's sick, unless the doctor felt like that was the right thing to do. But I think when, when we combine modern medicine with prayer, we give God plenty of room to work. And so there's an important part of that for us. And here's the question I want to ask you. How often do you pray for people's health, their spiritual health and their physical health? So the only two people in this group tonight that I'm aware of that are doctors are Mo and Garth. I know we've got other healthcare professionals. We've got Manny. We've got other you know people that are are in uh, health related fields. So I don't want to exclude you as well. But let's just say that the majority of us in this group tonight are not in, in are not physicians or even closely related to that. So we're really not too. Uh, well-equipped to help somebody physically. And that's why we have doctors. But how often do we pray for people's spiritual and physical well-being? I mean, Jesus was all about this. And I want to show you an example in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, this is uh, part of um, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. And it's not even, it's not so much the content of the prayer that I want to look at, but it's more the directive about prayer that I want you to see. And I think when I read this, my point is going to jump right out at you. Beginning of verse five. And when you pray, do not, like, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on battling like the pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. There are three words that stand out here, and it's the same word. It's when. And when you pray, verse 5. And when you pray, verse 6. And when you pray, verse 7. He doesn't say if. It was just, it was a given. It was assumed that they would be praying. Is it assumed amongst us as well? Because I think it should be. We should know that our brothers and sisters are praying for us, especially when we, when we put in a prayer request, whether it's something officially done, like through the app or something, or whether it's just in conversation on a, in a family group meeting or a you know, 
some guys getting together, or even if it's just a phone call, hey, look, I'm really struggling. I've got this thing going on. Okay, bro, I'm going to pray for you. And then like the minute you're, you're off the phone, it completely left your, your mind. And look, I've been guilty of that plenty of times. And I don't think I'm the only one. And so I think it would really do us all a lot of good, especially if you're on the receiving end, to be praying for each other and just assume that we're praying for each other. So whatever it is, a physical illness, a spiritual illness, the director from James here is that prayer changes things. He says that the prayer of, of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And so as effective as pouring oil on, on something might have been back then, I've got a hunch it was a prayer. You probably got the job done. And I think a good rule of thumb for us would be as effective as whatever medical treatment somebody might be receiving, I think it's a prayer that's going to get the job done. I think that's a really safe place for us as Christians to, to land. So let's be about that prayer. Let's, let's, let's be those righteous men of prayer. And then lastly, look in verse uh, where are we at? Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So here, here's another fact. While we go through our phases and our cycles, there may very well be times when we completely drift and we're just, we're like a wall. We're, 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 we're off the radar for a while. Jesus had that in his ministry as well. Take a look at John chapter six. And uh, John six, we're going to be pick this up in verse 60. Now this is right after Jesus preaches some pretty hard line stuff. That was, Probably pretty difficult for them to understand. But here's what they said. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, uh, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why is that? I mean, was the teaching really that difficult? Was it that hard? Or was it that they just really didn't want to accept it? They were just in a place where it's like, you know what? I don't know, man. I, you know, this discipleship thing is really hard, Jesus. And, you know, we have to just like, we're constantly on the move and everybody thinks we're, we're really weird. And, you know, we have to like do things that nobody else does and we can't do things everybody else does. And, you know, maybe the teaching wasn't all that hard. They just really were in a place where they didn't really want to hear it. And yes, I get it was a hard teaching. It was unlike anything that they'd ever heard before. And I think for us, the preaching and the, the message in the Bible about lordship and discipleship, yeah, it is hard. And it's, it, it's, it's probably not like anything you've ever heard before. But it's the truth. And it's what Jesus has to say. So, yes, it's hard. But ask yourself this question often. 
what is the most challenging thing to me about discipleship of Jesus? Because if you don't throw that question in front of you often, you're not going to answer it. So you've got to be asking yourself, okay, what is it that I really need to work on? There might very well be things that you get and, you know, okay, I'm not saying neglect those, but what are the things you really need to work on? I heard the story, maybe you've heard this as well. I think when Schwarzenegger used to work out in the gym, he would like cover up all the body parts except for the things that, you know, he really needed to work on so that he wouldn't be tempted to, to look at his physique and say, oh, I'm actually doing really well, so I don't need to work so hard today. And so let's say it was his calves, right? He would cover up everything except leaving his calves exposed. And maybe they were like, you know, pencil calves, probably not, but let's assume they were. Then he walks in, it's like, oh man, these calves stink. I, I got to work on these. And so you got to keep in front of you the thing that, that you know, this is, this is my weakness. This is the area where I've really got to grow. I've got to be on top of this. The standard that we have from the Bible, I know it's, it's challenging. So maybe that's a lot for you. Or maybe it's the commitment. Or maybe it's the devotion that's required, right? So this isn't a church that you can just plug in every now and then. And, and the ones that are doing that are really struggling. This is a church where you've got to be connected and committed or you're not going to do well. Maybe it's the allegiance first to the kingdom, not to any other empire allegiance that might be floating around out there. Maybe it's to the, the bond of fellowship and how much we really need each other as a family. All of it, I know, can be quite difficult. Jesus never said for a moment that this would be easy but he always said that it would be worth it. And James, just like Jesus, knew that people would drift away from time to time. They drift away from it. But we need to be there for each other to stop the drift and to bring people back. And so here's a question I want you to think about. And it's going to kind of go into our discussion questions here in a minute. So this isn't officially one of the questions, but I'm going to word it slightly different later, but do you know people that are drifting right now? <clears throat> I bet you do. <clears throat> I bet you know people that, yeah, they're there. I'm not hearing from them much. I'm not seeing much from them. I, I, I just think they're kind of out there in the wasteland somebody, someplace. But here's the bigger question. This is the, the more important one. What are you doing about it? If you know somebody that's drifting right now, what are you doing about it? Well, it begins with prayer, but that's followed up with action. Because in verse 20, he says, and brings them back. All right? So, you know, is, is to bring that person back, whoever turns that sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This, this bringing back was really important to Jesus. Look with me in Luke chapter 15. This will be our last one. Because Jesus was aware that people drifted. And it's something that really alarmed him. Verse 3. Then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and his, and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
I, I love the fellowship here. And I'm so glad that when I come on these Zoom groups or when I go to a post Sunday, you know, communion service, I get to see all kinds of people. But I, I always notice who's not there. Let's start looking for them. Let's start looking for the one or the however many there might be that are drifting right now. Because we can save them from the death that comes from the multitude of sins that they're probably going to end up in if they keep going in that direction. So great way to close out James and, uh, and James chapter 5. I, I really hope you've enjoyed this study. I hope that you've been able to really see how the Bible is not just something that you pull up in the morning for your quick quiet time and then get in the car or do what you do. But it's really something that is, is an everyday guide to life in the kingdom. And so as you're doing, you're doing your own quiet time and your own studies, continue to view it like that. Amen? All right. This has been an episode of the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. Please subscribe so you can keep up to date with the latest podcast.